This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Good evening to all and thanks, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this is Beyond Governance at 101.9. My name is Nimrod Dembele and thanks for uh, your company on this glorious Tuesday evening. Uh, it's amazing how time flies and um, tonight in a way we're going to talk about um, what is very topical. We've had a conversation I think of about two weeks ago. And uh, the tsunami is upon us. Uh, as we all know, the COVID-19 has fundamentally questioned and undermined every plans taken by humankind. And this is the stuff that you don't get any in any business school. And I suppose at some point we'll pose a question to our host as to what are the leadership uh, lessons that we can all draw from the coronavirus and in terms of how it has been managed by countries as also how it has been managed by corporations. But we all know that um, uh, the so-called the so-called, the so-called first world countries' plans have literally, you know, uh, gone tear shape, literally. Um, and these the the COVID nineteen virus have literally exposed the vulnerability of our economic system as we know it. Countries' death ratios have completely uh, gone haywire, and in some point, some countries. You know, debt due to GDP is around 70-75% And that raised a whole lot of questions around um, How do they service debt uh, Majority of people are already, you know, indebted Or in debt in the main um, Any further strangling on, on individuals for a month or two Can only spell a disaster in the long term South Africa as a country uh, have seen, uh, we've been in a technical recession for two successive quarters, uh, where we've registered negative growth. And this raised a very interesting questions around rating agencies, if you might recall. They gave us sort of a blueprint. What did they say to us, actually? They said to us as a country, reduce your, uh, reduce government debt. They said to us, reduce public wage bill. They also said to us, uh, review your, your state-owned enterprises as they are draining the fiscus. While we're in the process of listening to these kind of um, wisdom uh, from rating agencies, we were hit by, you know, COVID-19, which, which literally throughout every single plan, which um, recovery plan, which uh, the current administration has been working on. Since then, what have you observed globally? Hospitality and travel industries suffer major blows. Flights are cancelled. Hotel closed as there are no visitors coming through. Manufacturing has been brought to grounding hold. Mining operations have also been brought to a grounding hold. Companies have been called, I mean, have been forced to cancel uh, procurement. The other interesting observation on my side is the fact that the state capture inquiries would, is likely to be halted, if at all. And what does it mean in terms of the extension? Are we now going to see another extension over an extension? And what are the implications moving forward? Tonight we're going to talk about this, uh, how the COVID-19 um, is ravaging e- um, economics across, you know, the globe, and in particular South Africa. In making sense of this very uh, interesting and yet complex, I might add, unprecedented epidemic, I'm joined online by the CEO of the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Mr. Ellen Mukoki. 
for him to, you know, give us a sense from a business uh, point of view, how so far, have they know. responded on, or, and how has they perceived the, the, the response by government thus far? Uh, let me take this opportunity to welcome uh, Alan Corky. I want to understand how business has responded in relation to government strategy uh, um, uh, in the wake of the in the wake of the coronavirus. Well, we've, we've had to take the pain, as you you would appreciate that this is a very significant uh, development in all our lives, not just in our business lives, but in all our lives as citizens, uh, as business owners, as investors, as staff, suppliers, everyone in the value chain, including people who are outside of the value chain who just happen to be members of the community, whether they're employed or unemployed, they will all be affected by this particular pandemic. So to that extent, we've had to take the pain and the medicine nice and early uh, when we started seeing the numbers progressing very aggressively. As you saw just today, the numbers have moved up and again another 152 or something to something like 554. And, and this is a very significant development. It's a very serious issue. So we as business ourselves support wholeheartedly the decision to lock uh, uh, South Africa down. And you saw the Indians have done the same thing and the British have done the same thing because it's a very necessary thing that we need to all accept. Um, yes, indeed, we also do uh, believe at the same time we need to have a very balanced, managed situation and we have to continue to watch uh, the, the progression of the situation as we do not want to end up having a prescriptive dose that ends up being toxic as opposed to it being therapeutic. You know, uh, good medicine can kill a patient if it is not administered in the right dose. So whilst on the, on the, on the one side you are trying to resolve the issues of public health without any doubt, on the other side you need to also make sure that you don't destroy and kill the patient, uh, who is already a terminal patient in any event, so you don't speed up their demise, so you want to nurse and stabilize that particular patient, so that maybe at the right time, uh, when the when the sun comes up uh, in in the next few weeks, you can resuscitate your patient and then maybe things start again. So I think that that tiny balance, a sensitive balance, is going to be something that obviously affects all of us uh, from business to government. The problem has moved away from it being a government pr- uh, problem. It is not a Cyril Ramaphosa issue. It is now an issue for all of us individually. Uh, whether you're in business or you're not in business, you ought to be exercising the caution and the care that is required from a hygiene point of view, from a social distancing point of view. You need to stay home because only if we do that, we eliminate the possibility uh, of those who might be infecting other people unknowingly, right, running into those who are absolutely not infected at this point in time and creating a conflagration and a, a, a huge uh, 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 fire that we would actually struggle to, uh, to put down. Because you know that our infrastructure is very much, from a health point of view, is very much uh, constrained. You know, Paraguanath Hospital is the third largest hospital in the world, not just in, uh, in, uh, in Africa, in the whole world. And yet it only has 3,200 beds, and there are not too many of those particular beds that are freely available as we speak. As you've noticed, quite a number of procedures have to be postponed because they see what? 150,000 inpatients every year, 500,000 outpatients every year, 60,000 maternity uh, treatments every year. So 
Imagine a situation where the biggest of your hospitals were to be overrun. It would be overwhelmed very, very quickly if we don't watch this particular number. So the only guidance that is there today is to isolate and, uh, and, and practice social distance so that we don't increase the numbers of infection. If you do that, you flatten the curve, as people say, and you keep those infections low by containing uh, the situation over a longer period of time. And if you contain it over a longer period of time, you get yourself into an opportunity where perhaps a vaccine would be available uh, uh, in that particular period, and then you can now deal with the situation in a way that is very different. But your question, again, is a very uh, big question, because can we do that? Can we save people's lives by destroying the economy completely? That is the balance that we must definitely be able to find. And as the days progress, we're working very strongly with the government and closely with the government and the authorities. Uh, South Africa is one team when it comes to this particular issue, big labor, uh, big government, big business. We're working together with big community groups to ensure that this is about South Africa's survival uh, long term. So unfortunately, yes, we're going to have to take the pain. And job losses are, are not going to be avoidable. Uh, quite a number of people are going to lose their businesses. And that's why we need to investigate and look very thoroughly into all the uh, schemes that have been put together in assisting businesses and assisting employees via the UIF money and ensuring that in the final analysis, the devastation uh, after this war is not going to be such that we're not able to pick up the pieces and rebuild the economy again. Thank you very much for that input, uh, Alam. You've raised very pertinent issues. One is the fact that this is not the government's responsibility. This is a matter of concern for every single individual um, in the country, as it were. But do you think, um, you know, this message has gone across in a manner that uh, everyone is actually embracing their own responsibilities, or do we still get a sense that some people think this is government's problem. Well, that, that you will get in all societies. I was listening to uh, Mr. Boris Johnson uh, last night, and one of the things he was saying that I have asked you to exercise social distancing. I am now instructing you to do it. So you, 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 you get a sense that even our own president did exactly the same thing here in South Africa uh, in his last presentation to the nation uh, the other week. He was still pleading to all of us that we should exercise social distancing, and people were not actually doing that. I have uh, friends of mine who decided that they wanted to go play golf and were having fun, and a number of debates on our own social groups about why are you actually going out to play golf? And people were saying, but the golf course is open. We said, so what if it's open? You should stay at home because by exposing yourself to that particular situation, you're not actually helping. You're actually... Uh, 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 causing the worsening the situation. So I think that to the extent that there are two parts to this, there's a part where people quite clearly have not understood the message very well and maybe they are understanding and not being very close to the call face on what's going on with this particular issue has not been something that occupies their mind on a day-to-day basis. So it's, it's, it's a very real possibility that some people just didn't actually understand. And then there's a category of people who perhaps maybe would have thought, well, you know, this is not something that's going to affect me. It's very far from me. And then there would be the other category of people who believe very strongly that it has really nothing to do with me. It's inconveniencing me, and I'm just going to go ahead uh, uh, with business as usual. And people not really being conscious and aware of watching the data, watching the curve, 
as it moves in a way that is not even exponential anymore. It's actually explosive because if you're going to start just last week at 110 plus cases and suddenly in less than a, a week you've moved up six, uh, seven, eight, tenfold to 554 cases, people have got to be able to realize that this is no longer exponential. This is explosive as Dr. Mkiza, the Minister of Health, had warned uh, in that very, very early and first meeting. So from that point of view, yes, indeed, I think that you needed to get to a stage where you pass a decree and the president needed to instruct us now to order us uh, and to throw in the uh, South African National Defense Force and Security Forces around the issue. Because otherwise, you are not going to be able to convince everybody and make sure the message has actually penetrated to each and every one. There are people who are not actually on any uh, platform, basically. They are not actually going to know about it. But I think that's that's where we are right now. No, I think you raise a very a very interesting point about the um, uh, enforcement uh, of, of these declaration by the army, because we know for a fact that um, not every single person is aware or might be aware, but we do need an element of enforcement by the army, and and which I would believe would uh, would 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 uh, make a huge difference in as far as keeping the care is concerned. But but moving on, let's look at the question of business, particularly from um, state-owned enterprises. Um, this many people view the 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 uh, twenty-one day shutdown as almost like a blessing, if you like. Uh, from Escom no, point of view, I, because now Escom would um, given would have an opportunity to uh, rekindle its fire stations, um, um, you know, its, its uh, sta- uh, electricity station, and uh, do the proper maintenance purely because the the biggest consumers of energy, such as the mining house and manufacturing, would would be stopped. Would that spell good news um, on on the Escom? <clears throat> well, maybe maybe it's a, it's a yes and a no answer because number one, uh, ESCOM uh, not putting out energy or power out there is uh, probably maybe one side of the equation. It will definitely give them an opportunity. We hope to uh, to bulk up and tool up and make sure that they capacitate themselves in fixing all the the, the at least the, the maintenance part of it, right? Because the ESCOM problem is not just maintenance; it's just that the the power uh, systems and the plant and equipment is so old anyway, you know. So even if you are given a month, a one month free to fix it, you can go to some extent, but not to the whole extent. And the other problems will remain. But at the same time, that comes at a cost because what you are saying is that there is no productive capacity that's taking place. Taking out something like one month out of production, all the revenues for that month, the entire GDP of that entire month, and it cascades. It actually the domino effect because even though you're shutting down the place for a month, what's happening is that the, eff- the effects thereof are going to last for a much more longer period. Uh, effectively, some economists will tell you what you do in one month, it can last almost 12 to 18 months in terms of trying to recover from that. So, yes, on one side, yeah, there will be a small little silver lining that maybe uh, uh, organizations like ESCOM will get an opportunity to tool up and fix that which they were under pressure to fix in any event. Um, and maybe when we do reopen, maybe we can then be in a position to scale up uh, production and maybe try to meet those particular orders. There's nothing that anyone can do about it because all these countries in the world that we're actually trading with, they are also down. So it's not like you're going to produce and send to anyone else anyway. So, yes, to some extent, there will be uh, that particular opportunity, not an advantage more than it is an opportunity. 
Okay, great stuff. Before we go to break, I just want to throw in, um, you know, the, the, the gesture which was demonstrated by Rupert and Oppenheimer families when they donated one billion rand each to what, and to assist uh, small businesses and their employees. I think this is quite commendable. What's your take from a business point of view? Well, we, we have to welcome and, uh, and appreciate all the assistance that we can get. And but want to implore government to take SMEs much more seriously. You can't have individuals, two individuals, keep putting in one billion each, and then the government is putting far less than that in a sector that effectively is responsible for the creation of many, many, many of the jobs that are in South Africa today. Because once the bigger organizations listed at the stock exchange are big enough, but they are not necessarily responsible for the millions of jobs that have to be created. Those will come definitely from the SME sector. A lot of the corporate income tax, a lot of the personal income tax, and a lot of the indirect taxes is fueled, and it would come from the SME sector. As in all other big economies, what you'd find, you'd find that the SME sector consists of the largest contributor in terms of GDP and growth, et cetera, et cetera. So to that extent, yes, on the one side, we, we obviously welcome the two individual families, when they have done what they have done, which is very good, shows good citizenship, it goes patriotism, it shows patriotism, but we would have preferred to see the government itself coming up with most of, if not more, of that particular money to assist their smaller businesses because they are the ones who are going to suffer the most in this particular environment. Small businesses are the pillar of, of any economies. Um, from that end, we would expect government to play a significant role. Perhaps maybe it just might be too early uh, for us to, to, to point finger at government, but I hear your point, which is quite significant, uh, because that, in my mind, just raises an issue around uh, the extent to which uh, government takes SME. If government takes SME serious, they would obviously make uh, injection uh, proportionate to their thought processes around the value of SMEs uh, in, 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 you know, during these, these trying times. But perhaps maybe we'll, let us wait and see. Uh, maybe one of the ministers will come through to shed light in terms of what percentage of allocation uh, has been set aside from government side of things. And bearing in mind that government has uh, competing priorities, which uh, does doesn't really sit well from a financial point of view. Perhaps maybe let's uh, let's wait and see what's going to happen. One, what can perhaps maybe just take a quick break and come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. It is now uh, 28 minutes to 7. We're having a very interesting conversation with the CEO of uh, the South African uh, Chamber of Commerce and Trade and, and, and Commerce, Saki, the, um, the Mr. Ellen Mukoki. Um, perhaps maybe just to, you know, perhaps maybe apologize to the listeners uh, on the quality of sound. Uh, we bear in mind that uh, we, we, we decided to, to observe the protocol uh, mentioned by government in that uh, social distance is important. As I'm talking to now, I'm not at the studio. Uh, I'm actually at my house. We tried our best ways to connect with um, a very important person like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Alan Koki. We would like to apologize if, there's, if there are any uh, glitches. We just had to do what we had to do to keep you informed on these very important issues. Welcome back, Ellen. Welcome back. I, uh, my friends tell me that at your house you need to stand on top of the house. <laughs> People might just hear you. <laughs> on this note. <laughs> Take a step ladder. <laughs> stand up there. You will see, we'll all hear you. 
Yeah, no, 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 we'll make it clear. Um, the producers of the show are listening, so we'll, we'll take lessons uh, on this on this important very issue. Um, you know, earlier before we went to the break, we had a, just uh, a, a thought or an input around or an acknowledgement of uh, two families that have made a contribution, which uh, as business you acknowledge the significance on that, but over and above that, you of the view that government has to. Uh, contribute substantially because small businesses are the backbone of the economy. Uh, but let's now look at this special dispensation, uh, 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 you know, uh, pockets or, or, or resources that government is trying to put aside to rescue businesses in, in distress uh, due to COVID-19. Wouldn't you think that is a perhaps maybe a positive uh, move on the side of government to address the in, inherent, you know, uh, complications brought by COVID-19 from a business point of view? Yes, it is. I mean, uh, we can't deny the fact that these moves are all um, positive, obviously, within the uh, within the constraints of the, the the available funds that government has. It's, it's not like we just arrived here when we're doing particularly well with money lying around everywhere. I think that we had significant problems and we're struggling to just raise money to resolve the uh, the old problems that um, had been uh, bedeviling South Africa and the economy of South Africa in particular with SOEs and many of the other areas that require significant uh, injections of capital. Uh, so we are where we are. So within the constraints, I think, of what the government has, um, we have to find a way of doing it and, and doing it, as, as, as I said earlier on, in a way in which you can, or what you can do now, you can't make the the, the patient, uh, you can't heal the patient and and make the make her stand up and run a marathon. So all that you can do is stabilize people, stabilize the patient, and give them sufficient of the oxygen that they don't actually die. And uh, and hopefully, over the coming periods of time when things change, you can then start doing much more of the of the significant work around the repair. And the healing part, you know, but right now we are where we are. So those uh, particular sectors that have been chosen uh, that they can receive support, yes, they should receive the support. But we also have to be very smart and very intelligent around knowing how to do things. And, and I think that we have not particularly covered ourselves in glory in the past in terms of being able to make the priority decisions, not making decisions, but making the priority Decisions and being able to put them in a hierarchy. Yeah, so that's where you are in terms of trying to resuscitate and stabilize the patient. That's all that you can do. But make sure that you don't allow the patient to lose consciousness again whilst they are lying on the ICU bed. That's the South African economy that we'd like to discuss. As uh, Trump was talking yesterday controversially, so that the cure must not be worse than the problem that we're trying to fix. So it's the same thing, as I said earlier on, you know, the, the, the prescription, the prescription dose must not be toxic. It must be therapeutic so that we keep things stable. Uh, people are not going to stand up and run right now, but just keep the thing stable so that it doesn't actually die. That's all there is to it. That's all we can pray for over the next coming weeks. And hopefully when we're all through this situation, hopefully it will go we can manage to get back again, but we need to be able to then stand up because we're stable to stand up and start moving. I think that's where things are. So from a prioritization point of view, yes, uh, uh, positively, 
what the government is doing within its limited resources, I think that they are doing the best that they can. But we also need to learn with data science, with data and understanding that what are the things that are very important. In other words, the, the point we were making earlier on around, you know, there are so many needs that are there. Every need starts with the person that's going to make you the revenue that you need, the tax revenue that you need, so that you can do all those needs. So if you have to focus on anything at all, uh, you must focus on the policy, you must focus on the project that will give you the maximum return. In other words, the one that's going to deliver for you the higher level of output, such output you then need to be able to deploy to resolve all the other issues. In other words, if you're a billion rand, uh, to spend, it's like the old example uh, uh, of having one million rand, and then instead of taking the one million rand and you give it to uh, two or three business people who can create uh, jobs um, for 3,000 people who can maybe themselves feed, you know, 10, 20 people each, you then decide to give each uh, one of the one million people one rand, Number one, none of those people can buy a loaf of bread with a one rent. And number two, even if they did, when they wake up tomorrow, they no longer have the bread, neither do they have the one rent. So the one million has actually been wasted. But had you taken the one million and given it to one or two or three people who can create, even if they were creating 50 or 100 jobs, fact of the matter is that, one, the potential for that one million to generate, even if it was only generating for you 10 or 20%, is that you will continuously receive 200,000 every year in respect of your return, number one. Number two, the people employed, even if it's 50 or 100 of those people, are going to continue to generate some level of assistance for a number of people that are in their ecosystem. Let's say maybe each of the 50 people has got five people in their ecosystem. 250 people will continue to be supported by that one million that you actually gave to one person. And you yourself are making a return of 200,000 every year because that's a 20% return. And you have not lost the one million, by the way, because eventually you will be paid back that one million. So that's effectively, in a very simple example, is what we're saying by priority and creating a hierarchy in respect of where do you want to allocate. And yes, of course, there are always going to be very moral and ethical issues around that. You don't want to be giving one million to a business person by not buying the drugs or not buying the beds that are needed in an ICU hospital and therefore allowing people to die. No. What I'm saying is that you then need to be smart around how to articulate those things that you can manage within a particular substructure or particular uh, level that is equal where everything else remains equal. So you can be able to find those kinds of solutions instead of just wanting to go social on everything. Or no, you know what, we need to build roads, we need to... Uh, build a warehouse, we need to do all those particular things, when in fact the quickest way for you to be able to do that is find another one million very quickly so that the guy who employed 50 people can now employ another 100 people, you can now employ another 250 people, and very soon you can resolve these issues in a way that is permanent. Interesting observation from your side, um, Ellen. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got this thought in mind because as a country we've always been uh, obsessed with the rating agencies or, tra- or trying to align um, our policies to to, to circumvent uh, possible uh, uh, downgrade. To what extent the, the the current political and economic climate 
uh, have any bearing on, 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 on rating agencies? Is it something that we have to be concerned about or is it something that we just have to, uh, you know, put at the back for this is, this is global? Well, you know, you know, the, the, the late, uh, African American and well, uh, 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 um, uh, Tony Morrison, um, you know, wrote a book called Beloved. And in Beloved, she tells the story of people who've escaped from slavery, but they are actually haunted by its heritage. And I'm making this example very deliberately in that sometimes because we've operated in a world in which we were not driving our own thinking, our own innovation about how to resolve our own problems. We've tended to take perhaps maybe templates such as the Washington Consensus that you and I spoke about the last interview and then we've tended to say, oh, yes, because the big organizations like the MF and World Bank and the U.S. National Treasury were prescribing this to all the the, the, the defaulting Latin American countries in the 80s, uh, redirect public spending into into primary education, health and uh, infrastructure, and, and throw your interest rates into market forces, create competitive exchange rates, uh, liberalize trade. You know, and liberalize importation when you had not tooled up yourself. So I'm saying that most of those things that actually had to be done somehow tended to land us into this picture where we're haunted by heritage of having listened for a very, very long time and not doing our own thinking in terms of our own intellect, our own imagination of the problems that are unique to South Africa that we needed to solve. And because of that reason, we get caught too much sometimes into this idea of, well, you know, Let's not do A, B, C, D because the ratings agencies maybe will have a problem with us if we did that. Whereas sometimes if you believe that a decision that you need to take is very important and very significant, you should be able to take it if you can sustain it and you can justify what it is that it is going to give you in terms of economic growth, in terms of uh, industrialization, in terms of uh, creating employment, and in terms of addressing issues of poverty, addressing issues of hunger, addressing issues of uh, inequality, addressing issues of gender equality. So there are many things that we could have done in a way very differently, sometimes because we wanted the Reserve Bank to be very independent. We've kept interest rates too high for very, a very, very long time, even when we felt that we're going into some kind of a recession, because people are afraid to even question why is the central bank keeping the interest rate so high. Whereas on the other side, your friend Donald Trump is always attacking uh, uh, the, 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 US, uh, the Fed and complaining about the fact that they are keeping interest rates very high and not actually contributing to, to job growth. So I'm saying that in that political space, there are a lot of improvements in respect of the things that we ought to be able to do. We ought to be able to disrupt in a way that is making sense where we're driven by, we're driven by intellect. We're not just driven by emotion and political expediency or dogma or political ideology, but we're driven by uh, common sense and science and data and very, very clear recent thinking about what it is that we're attempting to do because we've got to have a vision as a country. I keep making this point. If we want to be a developed economy, we then need to be able to say, here are the things that we're putting on the ground. These are the pins that we're putting in. And these are the four, five, six, or even ten things that we're actually going to be working on. It doesn't matter what happens, but we're going to drive those things and drive those things very much aggressively. So, yes, we would then be caught in these kinds of uh, wild cycles and be uh, caught in what other, how other people would actually perceive us to be like instead of being the people who drive the thinking uh, for those people so that they can actually understand and uh, 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 what it is that we ourselves are doing.
you can't be better. Uh, no one can be better than you are. You know, there's only one Nimrod uh, in this whole world. You know, no one. I can never try to be like you. You know, you can only be better uh, at you, at who you are. So South Africa needs to be who they are. We need to understand our own unique circumstances and situations here, and actually drive our own agenda for development around what it is that makes us to be unique and very interesting. We can't do that by trying to be America or trying to be Chile or trying to be Venezuela or trying to be Brazil or trying to be uh, Russia. We can only do the best that we can trying to be who we are. So our template must be us looking at the things that are possible in our own context. We are a very rich country in terms of the mineral resources in the ground. In terms of a continent that we live in, we need innovative ideas about how to work with the rest of African economies, deploying that which we have and getting that they have that that which they have but we don't actually have, and driving that idea of development in a way that is significant, not necessarily by following anyone else's template. I couldn't agree with you. So you're saying we, you know, the the impact of COVID-19 has given us an opportunity as a country to reflect. And to be data driven, uh, to, to be led by ideologies that are pretty much responsive to the market requirements. Um, and, and, and is that a sense that I'm getting from you? I tell you why I'm raising this issue, uh, uh, Ellen. You, 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 I just want to juxtapose that with the Washington consensus that you spoke about. My sense is that South Africa trajectory to economic uh, emancipation, so to speak, uh, would, would be hamstrung by the similar, uh, um, you know, framework around consensus because we've got our own consensus regime, which I, in other circles, um, has come across as compromising because we, we, you know, the, the, the lot of policy issues are debated beyond debate. Uh, this consultation beyond consultation. We've shared this issue with you before. So how do we move away from, from, from this consensus, um, uh, uh, regime that is inherently problematic? Well, I think one of the things that we need to accept, you know, it's like you can't keep doing the same thing over and over, even if it's not actually working for you. Okay. So the new democratic government came in, 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 uh, in 94, you know, we X number of years, uh, 25 years into the new dawn. We are not making significant progress. We've made a little bit of progress, you know. So, yes, you can go to schools now. You can say there's easy, free access maybe to uh, to, to certain uh, uh, access areas where you originally would not have had that access. You can go to uh, to basic, at least, healthcare facilities. You can get reasonable access to those that originally maybe would not have been there. So many um, millions of RTP homes uh, have been built to create shelter for people. Yes, those things have all happened. I mean, I think that, I don't think that you can uh, walk away from that and say South Africa has not uh, succeeded uh, in those. We've also created a very strong constitutional democratic state. There are elections in this country every two and a half years. There's, there's political stability. There's no political instability. You don't like the government that is in power. You can organize uh, supporters and voters on your side and go and unelect them if that's what you choose to do. So there's peace. There are no bombs that are exploding uh, all about us and all over the place. But I think that we sort of like got caught there and we didn't come out. We didn't come out to dealing with the issues of development. We didn't come out dealing with the issues 
of hunger and and and, uh, and unemployment and then quality education and gender equality and driving innovation infrastructure economic development job creation we haven't done that we haven't done that successfully because we got caught somewhere we got lost you know it's like if you're trying to go to cape town and then you you got friends on the way in uh, beaufort west and then you get lost there somewhere you get caught there you find yourself a girlfriend and then you forget that you're supposed to head up to cape town uh, so we needed to stop and say, hold on, we've done all these other things pretty well. What are these things that we've not actually done well? And why do we insist on having policies that are not actually assisting us in driving the country forward? And therefore, we then need to stop. Let's just all stop. Let's disrupt all the things that we've done. Let's start with why this significantly important at certain levels uh, opportunities for consultation are themselves negative sometimes because you can't get everyone agreeing even within the same ruling political party there are so many different people people always say their factions i disagree i don't think their factions i think that you go to the conservative party in england you'll find exactly the same situation you go to the republican party not everyone in the republican party in the united states supports to donald trump yeah so everywhere you go where there are political parties, there will be different opinions and strains of influence by different people inside that political party. So this we know. And trying to conduct an orchestra all the time so that it can sing in one tune isn't always going to be helpful to South Africa. And that's why we've moved, number one, number one, and I've made that point very clearly, that A, one of the things that needs to change, one of the things that needs to change is that we need to change the constitution. We need to change the constitution of the republic. We need to change the constitution of the republic in terms of how we elect the, the president so that the president is elected um, maybe even 50% of the votes or 60% of the votes or 100% of the votes is elected by the voters. Because part of the problem is that you have a president who, who reports to his own uh, political party. He must manage a lot of... Um, uh, political uh, forces uh, inside his own organization, whereas if you were an executive president like a Donald Trump, you go in there, you take decisions. You know, uh, if you if you don't like this particular cabinet minister, you get rid of them, you find a new one. Whether they are a member of your party or not, it doesn't matter as long as they can do the work. So that, that first part is very important so that we hold one person accountable. Right now, we can't hold a collective accountable, even if it was one political party. And uh, and it's mischievous for people to always say, yeah, if you don't like uh, a ruling party, therefore, but you can unelect us. It's not as simple as that. But what we want to do to be moving very fast is to make sure that you've got an executive president who can put together he or her own executive team to run the affairs of the country. We need to make sure that the local a representative who represents us in our area has been elected by us, not imposed by the ruling party. We, we have to be able to look at all these things to ask this particular question. There may have been a time where the DA, the ANC, all of them agreed that it is okay to have this political party representation system. But there, there comes a time when you say, wait a minute, this thing is not actually really working, is it? So therefore, let's disrupt it. Let's look at it and say it doesn't work. Take it out. Number one. Number two, let's have a look at how we run the civil service system, as I've said in, 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 in an interview before. Why are we insisting that service servants, civil servants, senior civil servants must be hired 
from one narrow pool of people who are not actually going to get to be well paid in a country like ours. Because we are now dealing in a, in a world that is very complex, where we really need high level. We need, in other words, the best person for the job, right? And, and with respect, if I say, just an example, not that I'm, I'm picking on any one person, if we say the DG of uh, trade and industry, or the DG of the National Treasury must be a person in South Africa who is number one in his job. You you hear what I just said, right? Yeah. yeah. So, we always say that person in that job must be number one in their job in terms of their level of aptitude, their level of uh, skill, their level of competence. Or they must be in the top three or in the top five, whatever. Let's have a standard. There has to be a standard somewhere that says... For you to be the DG of DTI or the DG of public enterprises or the DG of telecommunications, you must be the authority in that area. You must be the most highly regarded, most sought after skill globally in your job. Can we do that? Simple things like that. Why? Why am I saying that? Because in the era of telecoms, in the era of public enterprises, in the area of trade and, 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 and industry in the era of national treasury. Those four areas are going to be the areas and the area of education, right? And maybe health. Those six areas are going to be the biggest areas, massive areas, in respect of what? In respect of whether we can take this country forward because you need the smartest, most talented people in those jobs. Now, what if then those people that I'm referring to, the top three people in the country who are available, who can, we can find. We don't want the person that's available. We want to go headhunt a person, right? We, we need to go pitch a person. If the person is Nimrod, we need to go sit down with Nimrod and say, we need you on this particular job and be able to meet Nimrod's requirements, which are competitive and market-based, isn't it? So if the guy who's supposed to be the DG of DPE or the DG of telecoms is a Rob Shooter sitting at MTN and he only wants to be paid something like, I don't know, and with respect to Rob, I haven't spoken to him so <laughs> please don't tell him I mentioned his name. So, but let's say maybe he says, I, I can only take that job for you, or from you if you pay me like 50 million, you know, I'll take 10 million as well as a basic and then the other 40 million rand must be some kind of a bonus. Why can't we do that? We should be able to do that because he must show us that he can deliver these objectives that we want from him and then we'll give him the 40 million bonus if that is what it is and if it is what, if that is what is, uh, market based and if he happens to be the best candidate we have for that particular job. Now, that type of thinking is not the type of thinking that you can easily navigate through a consultative process like you want to talk to unions, you want to talk to big government, you want to talk to the political party. You need to be able to be disruptive to be thinking at this particular level. You need to be exponential in your thinking. That's the type of conversation. That's the kind yeah, of conversation that we need in South Africa today. Well, Alan, as we wrapping up, I think the listeners um, have had some you know, food for thought in terms of how we take this country forward. My sense is that the, the quagmire that we find ourselves in, thanks to uh, COVID-19, has given us an opportunity as a country to take decisions that are not necessarily popular uh, in yes. the best interest of the economy moving forward. 
because um, as things stands, uh, there's, there's so many things that aren't necessarily kosher, so to speak. However, we require a very strong and decisive leadership. And you were correct in, in your assertion that, um, you know, the biggest challenge with the current administration uh, makeup is consultation base, and that is that is you know that is literally draining uh, and delaying decisiveness as we as, as we as we need it. But perhaps maybe we may have another conversation. I'll bring other uh, thought leaders in the space and say how do we change the constitution as you've correct but as as you've alluded to. How do we get to a point where you know we we we, we nominate or elect or appoint um, you know, um, you know, bureaucrats that are, are highly competent with correct aptitude and attitude and with unparalleled, uh, you know, a pedigree in what they do. So maybe that's, that, that's another conversation that could have as a way of okay. shifting or influ- of influencing the thinking. Once Thank again, you. it has been a pleasure to have you on board, uh, Ellen. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. There we go. That was Ellen Mukoki, who's the CEO of Saki, really giving us a, a, a his thoughts uh, in terms of how um, the business fraternity is responding to COVID-19 and the extent to which government's uh, precautionary measures have been accepted. There have obviously been positive developments uh, from, from his end, and this gives us an opportunity to reflect and do things differently. Until we meet again, it has been pleasure um, having you, um, you know, discussing these particular issues. And I want to apologize for a bad sound uh, or quality of the conversation because we're not broadcasting live from the studio um, outside at my home, as you can hear the noises. Until we meet again, have a good one and good night.